This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Shereen, and joining me today is Brenda Elsie. Brenda, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Shereen. How are you? I'm really good. I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. We have a lot to, both sitting here in our Argentina kits, there's a lot to talk about. Definitely. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask you something unrelated to football, unrelated to any type of grief and process and legend. Perhaps legend, though, is your favorite fall recipe. I only make green bean casserole once a year, and I make it from scratch. Like, I do the onions and everything, you know, in the oven. So I guess that's my favorite, because I try to save my cholesterol for toaster, strudel, and tater tots. That's a big one. tater tots. Yeah, mayonnaise. So I don't usually afford myself the green bean casserole recipe, but it's pretty good. It's not that hard. It's like half and half, but it's even got nutmeg. That's the secret right Nutmeg. There. And I, yeah, it's, it's wild. I actually Googled green bean casserole because I, I don't. Casserole is not a thing that Pakistanis do, really. So I was like, what, what is this? Something about canned soup is involved in this. So, <laughs> But this is the real kind. No cans, no Campbell's. Okay. It's like real green beans, okay. you know? And so at least there's some nutritional values. To it. Totally. Um, uh-huh. What about you, Shireen? Um, I actually had stepped away from making chili con carne for a while and I went back to it because it's fall and it's cold and we had a snowstorm, mm-hmm. like a snowfall, beautiful snowfall last weekend in Toronto mm-hmm. and I made it and my kids were like, just make this only for six months all the time. <laughs> and I mean, I couldn't believe it. Like I made, a, I cook about five pounds of meat per meal for my children and myself. So there was not even enough They're like small lion it's pretty <laughs> they'd eat me if i didn't have oh. everything else no but so what i did do is i found a chipotle and adobo in my cupboard which i know is you should put in anyway but just in the summer like i feel like that's a hearty fall winter kind of dish because it's so rich and, and full of flavor the smokiness of those flavors just did me in and we had garlic bread with it and then we sat around and it was just wonderful so and it also took me maybe 15 minutes and then it simmered for like a half an hour so it was like the easiest thing imaginable today we're going to talk about the legend the complexity the person that is Diego Maradona cuando salto Shilton ya la tenía en las manos. Y le dije, no, esta es mía, papá. Brenda, can you take us a little bit through who Diego Maradona is? Well, Diego Armando Maradona died suddenly this week. So that's, you know, part of why we're doing this segment on him at the age of 60. He was, to many people, the greatest men's soccer football player and therefore athlete, for Shereen and I, of the 20th century. He was <laughs> cough. He was born in 1960, and he's born in a place called Lanús, which is an industrial suburb of Buenos Aires, and pretty 
working class uh, at best, you know, precarious economic positions, you know. Uh, he was the youngest professional in the top division history of Argentina when he premiered at 15 for Argentinos Juniors. He went on to play for Boca Juniors five years later, which is sort of a perfect plot twist to the people's hero at the People's Club, the most popular club in Argentina. Then he went on to win a title for Boca, then on for Barcelona in the Spanish League and Napoli in 1986, which was Napoli's first title in the 60-year history of the Serie A. And that year, he put in the greatest individual performance in World Cup history, leading Argentina to win Mexico 1986 World Cup. And he played every minute of that tournament for Argentina. So those are the general outlines in terms of the highlights, why he's going to arguably be the greatest footballer of all time. I want to dive a little bit into that in terms of not just the cliches of what he did on the pitch, which we also will address because, I mean, if there's one player ever in the world that was cliche worthy, it was Maradona. But what did he mean to the people? Like, I mean, this was very much the people's player. Why are people grieving the way they are and reacting worldwide the way they are? I mean, I want to talk a little bit about that. I have to admit, his the news of his death caught me completely off guard. There's just some people that when you hear, you're like, no. And the only other person I remember feeling this strongly about was actually Lady Diana. I was like, there's no way. Like, that I had that visceral reaction. That was the only other time that I felt so, like, wait, perplexed almost. I knew he wasn't in good health. I knew this. But mm-hmm. it was almost like, what do we do now? I mean, very for those that don't follow football, the discussion about Pele and Maradona is undisputed. Nobody questions it. Like, there'll be questions like, is this basketball player good? Is this hockey player, you know, are they good enough? Blah. There's no debate about this. And I think that has affected people in a very intense way. I actually tweeted after I heard he had died because he's a complex character. And as I got older and learned more about him, you know, very much through you, Brenda, I had mentioned that and the response I got was really astounding to me, but unsurprising, I guess you could say, because people were in the midst of their grief and at all levels. Like, it was just a lot. So, I mean, I just said that he was magical and his performance on the pitch was what our dreams were made of, but he was. it was also important not to canonize him because I really thought that, and I think that we continue to glorify people without looking at nuance. But sometimes people aren't ready for nuance. Right, Bren? I don't think people are ever ready for nuance when it comes to Diego Maradona. I am sorry that you got that reaction, but not surprising. And because of the attachment that Argentines and really Latin America and the Global South have to Diego Maradona. Diego, vas a ser eterno siempre acá con la familia. Te amamos. I mean, I think it's impossible to understand that unless you understand a little bit of the history of the 1980s in Argentina and South America, right? So they're recovering from a ruthless dictatorship. You're looking at the period between... 76 and 1983 is one of enormous violence on the part of the military. They also lost a humiliating war against England, the War of the Malvinas, where they were trying to reoccupy an island off of Argentina that England has always claimed. Well, not always, of course, not always, but since, you know, colonial sort of times. Um, Which are the Falcon Islands. Right. We say Malvinas. Malvinas, um, okay. Because uh, not willing to concede them to England linguistically either. Okay. But yeah, in English, they are known as the Falkland Islands. And so that was a humiliating war, one that um, saw a lot of young conscripted men die uh, for no reason because of poor planning, because the military just sort of hoped that England would just give it up. You know, Margaret Thatcher, she's real flexible. So anyway, you have to understand that 86 and the time that he's doing all that club play in the 1980s, people felt very ambivalent about nationalism. You know, people on the left were horrified at how the military had used nationalism. 
people on the right even were sort of embarrassed by this war and embarrassed by the unraveling of the dictatorship. And Meridata gave Argentina this moment to celebrate itself in a way that everybody could sort of agree on, right? Because he was an anti-authoritarian figure, because he was anti-military. And so I think that's really important to kind of think through. And, you know, he understood very well that the world was not fair. So when he, you know, we've gone over this on the podcast, but it's more than just the moment of the hand of God where he says, you know, the England historically have used their power to exploit Argentina. Football is no different than the rest of the world. It's not fair. Nations don't start at the same level playing field. And, you know, I guess I'll just say one more thing quickly is that obviously his humble beginnings are really important to the global south. But we should think about the fact that most footballers, like most people in the world, come from poor backgrounds. And the difference with him is that in the 80s, in a time when footballers were turning away from political statements, when they had agents, when they were being managed, he thought about that identity as a political one, that this is something I articulate politically. It's not just like I'm poor and now I'm rich and that's awesome and I'm sorry for poor people, right? But it's like because I grew up in this, I understand both my meaning to people but also that working class people can be the pillars of excellence and artistry. And that's something that's really important to Argentina as it's going through neoliberal reforms in the 1980s and the global South just more broadly. So I don't know, that's a long way. I have a lot, I guess I have a lot of feelings about Marinette. Well, I mean, I think it's a great <laughs> time for you to talk about it. I mean, you're one of the world's foremost historians on this stuff. So I think it's, you know, we would be, we would be foolish not to talk about this with you. One of the things that always really astounded me, particularly as my love for Cantona, Eric Cantona, Manchester United player, and just absolute football legend. And I think people need to understand that in the 80s and 90s, football really was trying to suppress any hint of politicism. They still are to a degree, until very recently. I mean, you couldn't wear a shirt with any type of message on it without getting fined and being sort of shunned in the community. But therein comes Maradona. And very shortly after he was kicked out of the 94 World Cup for failing a drug test, he actually mobilized in a way with Eric Cantona, who was a French player. And like I said, for those that don't know of him, please check him out. He is an absolutely wonderful person, interesting character, brilliant mind. He's truly a thinker. And Maradona basically, and he decided that they would start a professional football union. And this was unheard of. And this was really unprecedented in that time. And there's a quote that I'm going to read that we'll put in the show notes, where Maradona says, this just came to me, uh, the idea of this union. And he says, we don't intend to fight anyone unless they want to fight. And that is so like a huge fuck you to the powers that be, which we know he had a penchant for doing, not just England, which I particularly enjoyed for many reasons, but just this idea that you can take the best interest of the players. And, you know, not just in Latin America, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but in many parts of the world, football was a, is a sport of the poor. It's not historically a sport that was enjoyed and occupied only by the elites. Right. I mean, it's it starts for a very brief amount of time as sports for the elite, right? As the British and the French and the Belgians and the Germans bring it with the colonization of Africa. And then there's this is all 19th century. And then surely they bring it with their economic influence in Latin America. But just like cricket in South Asia, it stays elite for a very short period of time you know, until it disseminates really quickly. So it's funny how often that shows like the British, you know, what was the what was the show on Netflix about the very origin, whatever. We it talked shows, about it with Gene Williams. I know, I know, but I hated game? it so much I totally forgot. <laughs> 
Um, but anyway, point being, all of these things spend so much time on this like elite moment of these popular sports to kind of romanticize that. But in large part, that was a very brief blip in history. The English game, it was called. No wonder, yeah, 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 no yeah. wonder you tried to block it out of memory. Anything with that kind of title mm-hmm. would like offend Brenda. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it does. So this idea that he was unionizing and mobilizing is really fascinating. And I mean, people have actually talked about Maradona's politics and that he yep. was leftist and he was for the people. I mean, there's even been commentary on how he was pro-Palestinian, which is certainly something we did not see in that time at all. I mean, talking about Palestine is incredibly unpopular in the larger scheme of sports globally. So, you know, there was a quote that he had said, um, that he was very he was very happy to say my heart is Palestinian, although I've only seen that quote once. It's not as if he used every platform he had to talk about this, but there's something about him talking about Bush as a war criminal, something about a star of his magnitude talking about anti-imperialism that I had certainly never seen before. And that was enthralling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think his anti-imperialism is central to his popularity. I also see it as an outgrowth of his class solidarity. He saw this as a kind of global class struggle and that imperialism was a tool of the economic elites of the world that to divide poor people, right? So it was sort of an extension of that popular politics in Argentina. So the idea that Palestine was just one more example of a new world order that oppressed people by and large was not that rare in Argentina. It is not... It wouldn't have been a surprise to the Argentine left, nor the Chilean left, nor the, you know, Latin American left. It's actually not nearly as controversial there as it would have been, you know, in the U.S. today. It was sort of seen as, as yeah. But that was part and parcel of who he was, right? That his class politics, that articulating it that way, meant he saw himself as champion against imperial projects. And the Fidel stuff, I mean, Che Guevara is Argentine. Mm -hmm. So even though he leads the Cuban revolution with Fidel, I mean, this is also, if there's anybody more iconic in Argentine popular culture, Latin America, it's going to be Che Guevara, Mm -hmm. Eva Perón, and Fidel Castro, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, he goes to Cuba ultimately to seek rehabilitation for the the drug abuse Mm -hmm. and because of their public health care system and because of the way that fidel sort of identifies with sports as a platform to building a kind of leftist agenda he goes there and he calls fidel castro like a father Mm -hmm. at a time when castro seemed sort of archaic uh we think more you know of castro's heyday in the 60s and 70s Mm -hmm. so So Maradona sort of goes and revives this cultural fascination, I think, with Cuba on the part of many Latin Americans. He gets a giant tattoo. He already had a tattoo of Che Guevara, you know. So it's interesting the ways in which he both sort of had that politics, but then he also, you know, made a point of visiting those places, Mm -hmm. made a point of living in Cuba for the time that he did. A lot will be mentioned about his support for Hugo Chavez. Mm Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that will say like, oh, how could he support Hugo Chavez? Until Hugo Chavez wasn't, he was the most democratic force in Venezuelan history. So remember when Maradona is supporting him, right? you know, and why? Yeah, I think that's really important to see. And then those that are critical of those, uh, you know, his alliances and allegiances, I think the thing we have to keep in mind is we're very much looking at this from an American lens and what that looks like and how we're tainted that way. So it's really important that, you know, we get this information, Brenda, as we think about it. One thing that, as I grew up and I grew I grew up watching Maradona and the first World Cup I remember was his. And my father was obsessed with him and we watched him. And the way he moved was, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but as much as we want to look and imagine and dream about his moves and emulate them, there's a lot of news that I began to hear, you know, and not just in the whispering of the digital feminist circles. It was allegations of violence. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the whispering of feminist circles is usually more right than wrong. And in this case, it's also true. So, you know, there were reports throughout his career of his treatment of women. In particular, there was a video that circulated a few years ago 
where he is abusing his partner at the time, both physically and verbally. So intimate partner violence has sort of really marked his record as a person and been really hard and painful with a lot of feminists to grapple with. Also coupled with a lot of homophobic statements that he made throughout the years, people will look back and say, well, that's the way people talked back then. This is like 2014. Um, There's a lot of people that don't talk like that. And it's hard and frustrating because you wanted him to change like you wanted society to change. But in many ways, he still embodies very traditional gender ideology. Mm-hmm. So as much as he's, his sort of masculine performance of long hair in a time when the military was enforcing short hair and prohibiting miniskirts by law and his earrings and his tattoos felt like they were something that was really anti-authoritarian, his, he hurt women very near to and far from him. And so there's that. And I don't know what to do except to just say there's that and it's not insignificant. Had, has anything come of those allegations against him, Brenda? I mean, no. It, it's, I, no, there wasn't. The video circulated. A million people in Argentina rose up in arms to defend Diego Maradona. Millions of justifications. Nothing was really done. There are some charges against him that circulated but did not get picked up by the police nor pursued by the survivors about sex with minors, which is rape, but I'm I'm just translating the sexical minorities literally from the Spanish, which is the charge. But no, they didn't go anywhere, and it's not much investigative journalism has been done to pursue whether those are concrete, but in any case, there's enough there to make you feel a bit uncomfortable just brushing them aside, too. Yeah, I mean, in and, and what Brenda's speaking of is Spanish media, because... I mean, there's absolutely nothing in English media about these specific allegations, the story, football media. And we've spoken of this before, how it tends to be hagiographic and in nature. And I think that that's something to be said. I remain completely unsurprised. I don't hold a lot of hope that football media will anytime soon start. And, you know, we're two people that have written of rape apologia in football culture, be it De Gea I've written on or we've written on Ronaldo together, Brenda. And it's almost like asking whether anything has come is a rhetorical question because we know he was never going to be charged with anything. Along with that, there's a couple of things that have confounded me as I kind of struggle to reconcile my adoration for his play, but my questioning of what happens and, and just sort of the way that women athletes love him and one of the things that you know I was aware of and and Diana Taurasi who we stand on this show WNBA legend has said and she was asked who her biggest Hispanic inspiration was and she said quote Diego is God to all Argentines she said but Manu Ginobili came from Argentina and changed the game in the NBA and how you play and now Messi with his touch and his worldwide impact but essentially the fact that Diego is God. And I was really struck by that. You know, how much do people, do they not know? Do they not interrogate everything that's happened? Like, why is that? Well, there's a famous quote by, well, first I can't answer that in a way because that's not the people that we are on this show, right? (laughs) So like, I don't know what it would be like to be somebody else, but this is what I imagine is there's a famous quote by Argentine writer Roberto Fontana Rosa, and he says, I don't care what Diego did with his life. I care what he did with mine. Wow. And I, I think that's dangerous in a sense because if everybody believes that, then nobody's ever accountable, right? It's all anecdotal, like, well, it was good for me. I worked with Clarence Thomas and nothing happened to me. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it just matters to me what Clarence Thomas did with my life. Um, that's such that's a, a wild example, but okay. I don't know. It's a, I'm sorry. I know. I did Lady Diana. You can do Clarence Thomas. It's well, fine. Well, politics on the brain, right? right? Supreme Court somewhere working in the background. 
And so I think that's a dangerous precedent, but I also feel a lot of sympathy with Fontana Rosa, who's saying it's almost a betrayal or feels like a betrayal to go in and find all the warts and scratch all the scabs off of like a wound that he felt Maradona helped to heal. And I think a lot of Argentines felt that way. And I think it's very difficult to go and kind of reopen that in some way it would sully the entire process that had felt healthy. Yeah, that's so so beautifully put, Brenda. And also one of the biggest things of how complicated it is. And he was a contradiction in himself in so many ways. There's one thing that I remember from most recently, the 2018 Men's World Cup, that he was he was seen and caught live by Jackie Oatley, who's a British football reporter and commentator. He was in the stands and he was actually caught making racist gestures to the South Korean fans. And he explained that, no, no, that's not what it was. It was me interacting with them and, and communicating with them and very much how you said, no, you need to lose that. That is antiquated. It's racist. It's unacceptable. But, you know, again, so many people jumped to his defense. But then again, more recently, and very recently, when in Napoli, Kalidou Koulibaly, who is a black player, endured racist abuse at Napoli, how Maradona came out, held up his shirt and said, this is not acceptable. So we still saw him trying to be better or do better or connect with that type of pain. And I think we we talked about this too. He even argued that he endured racist abuse as well while he was at Napoli. He did. And also in, in Barcelona as well, where he's called an indio, a slur in Spanish for Native American, I guess because of his father's mixed heritage. But really it's also about racist stereotyping of any poor person from Latin America, right? So you go to Spain. He's also called Sudaca, which is another... Um, it's not a slur, but it's like Indio. It's not a slur as much as it's like... A, it, it's a racialized term that's loaded mm-hmm. with prejudice. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, It's like you can use it in a way that's not, but this isn't the way it was used against him. Mm. I mean... We've talked so much about the complexities of him as a man. Brenda, I do want to talk a little bit about his magic on the pitch. Me too. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Casual fans, Brenda, know of him. But we'll dive deeply into this because you and I are just rearing to go to talk about the technicality and the actual football play. So... Tell me about him. Tell me about how he was a 10. Tell me about the type of 10 that he was, Brenda. Maradona is a classic 10. So for those of you out there that don't love football um, so much, and bear with me, those of you who do, the numbers are indicative of the position a lot of times, particularly back then in you know the 1970s and 80s in South America. So a classic 10 is either an attacking midfielder or a kind of forward position. Maradona is perfect for it. Dribbling skills, field of vision, playmaking, and disruptive, right? So, yeah. So way in which whatever way that the defenders are thinking that they're going to defend you, you you've already sort of interpreted how they're going to defend you and you're able, able to disrupt whatever play that they have. This isn't a type of play, it's very individual and it's not one, it's not Cruyff, it's like the anti-Cruyff, right? He is not a passler, he's a dribbler. I don't think this type of player will ever exist again. I, I don't think there's any space for a 10 that is, to put it in, you know, juvenile terms, a ball hog like that. It's just, it wouldn't work because of the press, right? They're too athletic, they're too fast, defenders are too quick on the ball, right? And defenders now have dribbling skills that they never had before. Mm. So, so which, the defense, which we could yeah. argue was inspired very much from him. Yep, yep. And players like that, right? Pele mm. and and these kinds of players, mm-hmm. although Pele did know how to pass. Um, so it's a little bit different, you know. Also to say in the 1980s, one thing that probably shortened his career that made, I don't know that he would have done well in the 1994 World Cup 
even if he wasn't bounced for a drug test. (laughs) But shortened career by like the hacking, it was just a different era of officiating. If you look at that, I mean, it is, the tackles are so dirty, so dirty. Oh, so, I mean, I don't, it's painful to watch. I mean, I, you know, I'm a forward and I'm very much a tackler and I was very inspired by him in so many ways. I mean, I pass, however, but I think that that Mm -hmm. comes from being a Barcelona Mm -hmm. fan very much. Mm -hmm. So like wanting that, but for me, I see you as a number nine. I'm just the footnote. I see you as a striker. Yeah, I'm I'm not a 10 at all. But I think the thing is, is that for me, I felt that he was not the most graceful player. And I think this is fine to say. If we look at his <laughs> tactical skill, we just, he wasn't graceful. I mean, we think of Pelé. We think of him dancing with the ball, his movements, his strides, like even the way that he touched from one to the other. And like you mentioned, Johan Creo, for those that don't know the Dutch legend, who also played at Barcelona, there were two very, very... I'm just going to pretend there's people that don't know Johan Cruyff. So I think the thing is that we have to accept this power with what can be construed now when we have very much a, you know, tiki-taka passing type of game, that he was a force. He was a brutal force. And I actually have this theory, it's a bit of a hot take here, that he was better suited to Napoli than he was to Barcelona. Because Barcelona at the time that he was there was up and coming. And I see Brenda's thinking face about it. Uh, what I'm saying, but just that, not just culturally, he was better suited to Napoli, but during his lifetime, the way that he played, the style of play that he had that was unrepentant, unapologetic, and I'm going forward. Like, I think it, inconceivably, him going through five players, and there's this iconic image of him dribbling during the World Cup through five Belgian players. And we're all like, oh, that's amazing. But if you're on the play and you're a tactical person with knowledge and game IQ, dribbling through five players is not the smartest thing. You should be able to pass and move on and move the ball around the field. And that's ideally what we want in football. He didn't do that. And at the same time, they were like, oh, this is a disaster. You're like, oh, I can't get enough of this. I wouldn't want to be his coach. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh God! I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, I think that would be an incredibly frustrating experience. So uh, I would have to think a little harder, probably, about Napoli's coach. But to say that certainly Napoli had never had a world class player of that no. caliber. Yeah. That at Barcelona he got a lot better and he was much fitter mm-hmm. than he had been. He's five five. He's really small in stature. The Spanish league was brutal. He got his ankle broken mm-hmm. with a late tackle by what I just know him by his nickname, the Belgian butcher or whatever. <laughs> um, that's a real thing that makes Sergio Ramos look like a decent human. Oh. So imagine, imagine day. And so, and I mean, so I don't know, but I know that probably the Spanish league was a little bit violent for him to get the job done, even though he did get the Copa del Rey and he did win the Clasico against Real Madrid for Barcelona. But he did get in a brutal fight with Bilbao mm. where his ankle had been broken before. He takes a few months off. He goes back. He gets frustrated. He more dirty tackles to the extent that he basically starts one of the worst brawls in the history of the Spanish league, which you can find on YouTube. He will be, you know, elbowing headbutt, headbutt, mm-hmm. full out headbutt, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's in front of the king of Spain. And then he's traded. <laughs> so I think, you know, they were like, woof. You know, the Barcelona president says, oh, go to Napoli because you are just, you are too hot to handle. So certainly um, Napoli was ready for him. Again, really storybook, right? Uh, You have Italian immigrants who came to Argentina and made up about a third of the population of Argentina, which is disproportionately the place where there's most diasporic Italian community. So him going to the south of Italy in this moment where northern racism and Berlusconi just took over Milan. And so he's infusing Italian football with all of this, like, white nationalist power. And to have Maradona then take the Serie A for the first time Mm -hmm. in history, it was like the win of the South. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the testaments to him in the memorials, you know, Italy really rivals Argentina in its grief and adoration of Maradona. So, yeah, it worked out. (laughs) 
And as we continue to grapple with Diego Maradona and what he meant to football and what he's given to football and what he added to football and what he's given to so many of us, we'll just end up by saying that in this religion that we call football, he wasn't a prophet. He was a god. Here's a little preview of my interview with Azure Stevens of WNBA's Chicago Sky on the Wubble women's basketball, and why Black women are everything that drops on Thursday. Just being a WNBA player, you have such an impact that you can make on your community. That's something that I try to do the most is being here, you know, mentoring young Black female athletes coming up, um, really take them under my wing, share my experiences with them, look out for them a little bit more. But even in general, just young female basketball players around here, I try to really give back to my community in that way. But I think it just looks different for everyone. And I think after you know, this year, all the tragedy and stuff, it's, it's kind of like you have a moment where you're like, dang, like, what can I do? 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Mama. Indeed is the number one job site in the world, with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Mama! Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Mama! Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. Mama! <sighs> You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria so that you can contact them the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visiting Indeed each month, according to Comscore, total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Mama! Maybe a babysitter, too. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Like most historians, I'm terrible at predicting the future. But when I'm feeling lucky, I go to bet online. Football is back in full swing, and you might not be at a game this year, and probably shouldn't be, but you can still be in on the action at bet online. Bet online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. On to our favorite segment. Brenda, what are you burning? I am burning the behavior and the reaction to the behavior of UC Berkeley women's soccer coach, Neil McGuire. So a local Fox News channel, KTVU, did a year-long investigation into the climate at UC Berkeley women's soccer program. Now, this is a, a storied program produced the likes of Alex Morgan, very important. And it also, of course, comes in the wake of all kinds of cases that are coming to light about abuse in college athletics. Of course, it's like a snowball, right? I mean, it's just sort of feels like it's exponential, which is probably maybe good because people care. So anyway, a year-long investigation into Berkeley. And what they found 
is that this guy, Neil McGuire, basically has verbally, emotionally abused his players to a shocking extent. And the reaction of people has been like, meh, I mean, it's not that bad. I implore you to go and listen to the players who are interviewed and who have come out that talk about a climate of retribution and describe the way in which Mr. McGuire treated them for years, sometimes putting them, you know, into such a crisis and depression and threats of taking away their scholarship that they are suicidal by the end and quit football and hate football and never want to play it again and are actually triggered by the entire sport that they love. So I want to burn his behavior. He is at a public program at a flagship university, one of the best public universities in this country. He should be fired and dismissed if these are found to be substantial. And certainly it looks like that from the report, but um, I encourage people to go look at it for yourself and to listen to this. Uh, At the very least, there needs to be a thorough investigation on the part of Berkeley and I want to burn all the people that are like so shitty just out there being like well if it's not physical then it's not abuse seriously like where have you people been what well I know where you are like you're in your troll cave somewhere so go away like stay (laughs) stay off the story or or learn something and pick up a book because it is it's abuse it shouldn't be tolerated at the university burn burn Keeping in theme with our football this week, I'm going to, and we've talked about this burn before on the show and how the storied Liverpool Football Club, you'll never walk alone. Well, there is one segment that is walking alone and that's their women's side. So for those that don't know, Liverpool actually opened a brand new spanking facility. It's called the AXA Training Center and it's a 50 million you like pound facility like this is huge in Kirkby and it has a paddled tennis court and they play like Jurgen Klopp the the coach uh, is very interested in paddle tennis courts so of course you'd have one on the facility they have two televisions in his office which is like two minutes there there's another tennis court there's beach soccer and beach volleyball facilities like it's a beautiful training space it's it's like a recreational center also in a way it's for the team according to their manager and managing director andy hughes more things for the team to do when they are not playing football because other than just being supported but guess what one thing doesn't have The women's side have access to it. The women to this day still practice at a facility that is about 13 miles away from that. It's the Tranmere Rovers facility. Um, It's called the campus. Now, it doesn't have a paddle tennis court and all the facilities that we would expect for a club of that level to provide. And we all know how shitty Liverpool has been with their women's side. We've talked about it on the show, how it's unacceptable. Katie Wyatt of The Athletic, and I'm actually reading from her article, which we will put in the show notes, talks about how it's the contract with Tranmere actually expires at the end of the season. And then what happens to the Liverpool women? Well, guess what, y'all? They don't know. They can't even commit to having the women share the space. And that, for me, is unacceptable. Uh, it's really difficult for women to perform if you don't invest in them. This is a basic concept. I want to take all of this, including the, no offense to the paddle tennis people, but I'm sorry I got no time for this. I want to take all of it and I want to put it on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Not to crosstalk, but Liverpool is worth $2.3 billion. Really? $2.3 billion. Yeah. Like, really? Billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, we know mm-hmm. this, but like, really? I have no time for these shenanigans. Mm-mm. Moving on from the shenanigans, Brenda, let's lift up some wonderful people. We have lost many sporting greats this week, and we are honoring their memories. And may a candle be lit and glow very brightly for the following legends. Burn It All Down offers our deepest condolences to the family of Fred Sasakamus, the first Indigenous man to play in the NHL. I went to Chicago. Wow. I look at that dressing room of the Chicago Blackhawk. I see number 21. On top of that, number 21 says Akamos. <laughs> 
That's what it was all about. He died at 86 after being hospitalized with COVID-19. We also offer our thoughts and love to the family of Leighton Accardo, a nine-year-old Arizona Coyotes superfan who lost her battle with cancer this past week. Now, honorable mentions for the following trailblazers. Brenda. Equestrian Holly Doyle was named the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year. Along those same lines, the Sunday Times has also awarded British cyclist Dame Sarah Story as the Disability Sportswoman of the Year. Black Muslim rugby player Zanab Alima voted Vitality Grassroots Sportswoman of the Year. Sue Barker, OBE, received the Talk Sport Lifetime Achievement Award. And young Muslim footballer Leila Bonardas was handed the Young Inspiration Award. And fitness expert Alice Living wins the Influencer Award, which actually celebrates influencers who use their voices to inspire the nation during this lockdown pandemic period. And now they've all received honorable mention for Torchbearers Award. <laughs> so there's that. There's that, obviously. Who you got next, friend? I want to shout out our favorite fiery scribes, Jessica Luther and her co-author, Kavitha Davidson, who got a wonderful review in the New York Times for their new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, that was published by University of Texas, where you should go and purchase it. Can I get a drum roll, please? Brenda, no, Brenda, drum roll. What? I drum? No, like longer than one bar. Okay. okay, no Phil Collins. Okay, Torchbearer of the Week. <laughs> Torchbearer of the Week goes to Sarah Fuller of Vanderbilt University. Woo! Fuller makes history as the first woman to appear in a Power 5 football game. She is an amazing kicker who happens to also be the senior goalkeeper on the women's soccer team. I just want to tell like all the girls out there that you can do anything you set your mind to. Like You really can. And if you have that mentality all the way through, like you can do big things. So... Fuller wore a Play Like a Girl sticker on the back of her helmet in support of STEM. And we are here for this glory and her story. Brenda, tell me what's good. I really enjoyed the burn it all down commencement of our secret Santa holiday elf thing, which Amira set up this thingy secret santa elf (laughs) thingy and then i get to look at what people actually want and it's super cute and funny for it's like under 25 dollars or whatever and um i don't know then people ask you anonymous questions so people ask you what your favorite color is and what your size is and then you see what they answer and then you ask them random things and it's really funny and cute and adorable also uh on the topic of maradona there's an event december 10th at the Institute of the Americas at University College London, where I'll be talking about Maradona with Ernesto Semán, Pablo Simeonetti, Matthew Brown, and Paolo Drino. And that's going to be really cool. Um, It's sold out, so I tell you all to come. But I do think I can make some spots for flamethrowers if if need be. Um, So I'm really excited about that because... As sad as I am, it's kind of nice to be able to spend a whole lot of time on Diego with a whole lot of people as well, um, as a testament. So his, you know, gift that keeps giving. Not his death, his life. <laughs> I'm so morbid. I want to 100%. I need a link for that. I definitely want to attend that. Mm-hmm. Um for me, it's end of November. I have like tons of term papers and everything due. I also have bought glittery jogging pants sequined ones and I'm very excited about that I am very susceptible to online target ad campaigns and marketing (laughs) I'm the worst jihad my daughter has been like please stop you have to stop now wait but are they loose fit they're beautiful I was leggings they're they're no they're like loose fit they look like joggers but they're sequined like they're amazing and I you can are they flippy sequins like do they no they I'm not from the generation I'm not from the generation of flippy sequins sequins are supposed to go in one direction I'm a bit of a sequin purist when it comes to this Um, I'm not, I don't object to reversible sequins. However, I just, I'm really excited about these pants and I got them in Christmas red is the name of the color. I don't actually celebrate Christmas, but I'm very excited about these pants and I shall wear them festively. Um, 
last week's weekend sometime, I watched this movie on Netflix. I rewarded myself after doing tons of work. Um, my Saturday night is mostly in front of a computer um, reading academic journals. So I rewarded myself when I was done with watching a movie called The Life Ahead with Sophia Loren on Netflix. And it's this really beautiful story of this elderly Jewish woman and her interaction and fostering of a young Muslim child who's an orphan. And it was an unbelievably moving film. I thought her performance was incredible. I loved the whole thing. I cried my eyes out, but I cried everything. But I particularly cried at this. So if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend. It's not a Christmas film. It's just a beautifully done story. And in fact, Sophia Loren's son directed it, which I find really interesting. And I also am, I still marvel at how like perky her boobs are at 86. So that's like phenomenal to me. No work there. <laughs> so what are we watching this week? Now, this is so fun for me. Snooker. For all of y'all that are interested in snooker, the UK championship is happening at the Marshall Arena in Milton Keynes. Uh, NCAA is a big month of college football this month. There's a couple of weeks left for the regular season before the conference championship and then bowl season. NFL football. We're going to head into weeks 13 to 16, and although we've got concerns about all of that and how terrible it is, this is going to happen before they gear up for the NFL playoffs. The LPGA is happening. The Volunteers of America Classic will be from December 3rd to the 6th. We've got motorsport, Formula One, folks. We've got down to two final Grand Prix events, and then Lewis Hamilton will look to claim another driving championship. We've got the Women's Euro Qualifiers, the FA Women's Super League continues, the FA Women's Championship, and the Premier League continues, as well as the next round of the Champs League. We're very excited about this uh, and before we get to the final 16. So there's some incredible matches coming up this week. Also, just wanted to say shout out to the new Japanese pro wrestling that is happening between November 15th and November, sorry, November 15th and December 11th, the NJPW World Tag League and Best of the Super Junior is happening. And this is imperative for those of you interested in Japanese pro wrestling. That's it for us this week. Thank you for hanging in as we reveled and reflected and inflected on the legend of Diego Maradona. That's it from me and Brenda. And although we're done for now, you can always burn all day and all night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including masks, mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, and bags. What a better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and do your Christmas shopping. And even if you don't celebrate Christmas, buy it anyway. And you can do this by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it. Uh, Burn It All Down lives on the Blue Wire Podcast Network and be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Please rate and subscribe to let us know what we did and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at, at Burn It Down Pod. You can also email us, burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. We wish you safety and health and whatever joys you can muster during this chaotic time. And as Brenda always says, burn on and not out. <laughs> <laughs>